good morning. You can hear me okay, right? Okay, I'm glad to be here. I suppose I'm glad to be anywhere above the ground. <laughs> we all want to see Jesus, but maybe not just yet. Um, this church is special to me because you've been with me from the very beginning. In 2004, I took my first trip to Papua, came back to raise support. I think I had $300 left. I went to a fire conference in Colorado, gave a three-minute talk, and uh, said I lacked $300, and two pastors followed me to the back, and before I even sat down, the need was met. I think I booked the tickets that very night to head back. 2006, we learned the language. We uh, had our second child, Alethea, in Bandung, in Java. We have four children. The two girls were born in Indonesia. Two boys happened to be born here in the States. And uh, after we learned the language, we moved to Papua. And then we had to learn the Papuan dialect of Indonesian, which is much different, like a hillbilly version of Indonesian. And then we chose the Korowai tribe. And I made a vow to God. Uh, God, let me reach this tribe or let me die trying. And he almost fulfilled both parts of that request. So be careful what you promise to God because <laughs> he will take you at your word. The Korowai have been described by the National Geographic as the treehouse people because they build their houses 20 or 30 feet up in the air. Any guesses to why? Maybe people will say usually animals or floods, right? But the reason is because of witches. They're afraid of witches. And each treehouse has built at the foundation anti-witch repellent, a bundle of leaves, and sometimes at the top, so they live in animistic fear. You know what animism is? Animism is that the entire world is governed by spirits. It's almost like they forgot the creator God, and so they've devolved into appeasing the lesser spirits out of fear. If you do these rituals, if you do this or you do that, then the spirits will not bother you. So it's a fear-based mindset, and the people were very fearful. They feared their fellow man, they had extremely high rates of homicide. Many adult males have committed murder. And they feared the spirit world as well. The Smithsonian Magazine called them the last cannibals uh, because up until recent times, they still killed and dismembered and consumed uh, because you have to kill a witch and you have to consume the evil from amongst you almost an Old Testament concept. The last tribal murder happened while we were building our house. They accused a young man of witchcraft and they bound his arms and legs, broke his arms and legs, took him down to me and my son Noah's swimming hole and strangled him to death as my house was being finished. Uh, so this gives you some of the mindset of the people. Um, they don't usually argue with logic it comes down to force. And uh, so our first years seemed to be a constant uh, receiving of threats by certain individuals in the tribe. So our area 
if you hiked all the way around it, it would take you two weeks to hike around. And I don't mean hiking like here. Sometimes it's ankle deep, it's shin deep, sometimes it's knee deep. Um, one time I went through a swamp for about an hour, neck deep, and I could see this cloud of mosquitoes buzzing around my head. Um, and uh, just the whole jungle smells rotten sometimes. But in the village of Danawage, it's a new it was a new village at that time, and this 70-year-old pastor, a Papuan pastor from the highlands, the highlands of Papua received the gospel in the 70s or 80s, and the Dani tribe received it with a lot of enthusiasm, and they felt led. They had churches in the mountains, and they felt led to take the gospel down to the last lowland areas where nobody wanted to go, because if you live there, you get malaria and you die. It's just a rough existence. Um, I took a group photo of a lot of teenagers, about 12 or 13 teenagers, um, probably about 14 years ago. And uh, as of today, every single one of them are dead, except for one that we shipped out for schooling. So I'm 46, I'm an old man. <laughs> so it's just, uh, that's the price, the price of doing business there. And so this old 70-year-old pastor, Johannes Erlach, he entered this village. They almost shot him with arrows several times. He lived in a treehouse for six months. He treated the sick. The sick recovered, and they invited him back, and so he brought me. And I built my house in 2007, and we began to minister. Um, we were five days' walk from the nearest town with a vehicle. Some of the Korowai youth would hike five days to go see the, the, the truck that they had in Dakai Village. There was no government presence, no electricity, no roads. We entered the first time with a helicopter. You hack out an area the size of a tennis court. And then there was a straight stretch of river, so we pulled the logs out of it and we opened a water strip. And then we begin to land on the river in a small missionary float plane. And so maybe some of you all go to Walmart three or four times a week, but imagine if you pack your whole family on an airplane and you land and you gotta stay there for eight to 10 weeks with whatever you shipped in. And so you begin to calculate things. We got 300 kilograms. Well, I'm a big guy. You know, we, we add kids every couple years and do we add two more kilograms of flour for biscuits or do we add two more kilograms of homeschooling books for my son, which is more important? So those are the decisions you gotta make. And then we formed a team of Highland Papuan Christians, about 20 of them, and I placed myself in the middle of this area in Donawage, and within 12 hours I could reach any of the surrounding villages. And we placed the evangelists in the villages surrounding. We equipped each of them with a shortwave radio. And that way, if there was some very uh, uh, severe sickness, they could call me on the radio. And then I would hike out with my old army rucksack full of medicine. And hopefully by nighttime, I could be there to treat the sick. And um, many people die of needless causes, malaria, dehydration, stomach issues, parasites. Um, it's just a shame. And so through this system, we begin to see that not as many people died. 
In the past, the vast majority died before the age of two. And now I see pictures. <laughs> now I see pictures of the village and there's all these fat little chubby babies. So, you know, we're there, we want to see souls saved, but you know, fat little chubby babies is a, is a great thing to see as well, right? So how do you reach an area like this? We basically had to open an area. We opened this water strip, and then we invited another team to begin to, a team of Highland Donnie Christians to begin to hack out a dirt airstrip. No tractors, no chainsaws even. With just machetes and axes, they begin to cut a dirt airstrip out of the jungle. Um, the trees were too big to cut sometimes, so they had to dig around the roots. Then they had to cut the smaller roots with hatchets. And then once enough roots are cut, you can start wiggling this tree and then it all falls over, pulls this huge hole out of the ground and then you fill the hole with rocks because you, you can't have mud in there because an airplane's gotta land on it. So back-breaking labor over six years to build this dirt airstrip. The tribe had over 99% illiteracy. How do you reach an illiterate people? And so God often turns tragedy into triumph the tribal guy Obed was shot with arrows and left for dead, so we treated him. He learned some Indonesian. He became our translator. We got these picture books, and we just begin to circulate. I mean, I, uh, I was saved at 18. My voice stinks. I can't sing anything. I don't, sometimes, I'm not, maybe I'm not a good fit for civilization, but uh, I grew up hiking and canoeing, and God allowed me to do that for the sake of Jesus. And so many days out of the month, I'd, be, I'd hit the trail and I'd circulate among these tree houses and I would explain these picture books. I would use a translator. I would begin to record the voices, the explanations, the gospel answers on audio to play it to the old people in the tree houses that had no capacity to learn Indonesian. Um, months and months of no results and we read missionary biographies, oh, seven, 10, 14 years, and not a single convert. At the end of our first term, we had one convert who promptly died, Condreas. <laughs> he was one of my translators. He hiked everywhere with me. As soon as I left on my furlough, a couple, uh, couple weeks later, he died. Um, and the manner of his death was, as he was dying, the Dani, the Papuan Christian evangelist, tried to pray for him and they, and they were pulled out of his hut because the people still wanted to work their animistic rituals on Condreas, but he refused. One of the female Christians, Perrin, that lived with us for the first five years, they pulled her out by her hair. And so Condreas, in the middle of the night, he crawled out of his hut and he gathered his friends around him. And he says, I know I'm going to die, but I believe in Jesus, I'm going to heaven. You must believe too. And again, God, he turns tragedy into triumph. <clears throat> so of that group of boys, that became the, the core of the church leadership now. Strange how that works. All of them came to faith except for one, Mesach. And... Uh, Mesach, he had a beautiful voice, and he composed the first 
hymns in the Korowai language. He would sing them in the church. But he had participated in a tribal murder. And usually you don't just kill people to kill them. Usually there's some payout. And so my tribe has child brides. And the phrase the men use when they barter for these young girls is I have raised her up to be my wife. So they'll trade goods, they'll trade pigs or cassowary for a girl as young as nine or 10 or 11. And uh, she will go into the man's house. He'll be 30, 35, 40 years old sometimes. Usually she's crying. Um, after we came, we resolved that that would never happen. So we shielded some of these girls and we, we fault me if you will, we threatened to fight these men if they came for these girls. Um, I'm not a pacifist, and if there's anything worth fighting for, it's these little girls. Um, but Mesak had a little girl promised to him, and so he held on to that even as he was dying of illness. Even his last week alive, we had this village of mostly females that would come for treatment. Every afternoon, we would bang on a cooking pot, clang, 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 and the people would hear it. And the sick would come. My wife would treat them on our porch. If they were too sick to come, they would tell us about it, and I would hike out to treat them at their location. Uh, so these women from Mabawagi, they would come for treatment. Usually it takes four days to treat malaria. Sometimes they'd have to go back after two days because they'd get harassed. We had a kid die because they were afraid to come to the village because they were harassed. And so Mesox last week, he tried to crawl out of his hut as sick as he was, and he tried to harass this girl in the girl's bathing spot down at the creek. And a week later, he was dead. But all the other young men, they're now the church leadership. The first, man, first young man I baptized, Waihu, he just graduated Bible school four months ago. So, and then how did my family's first term end? My wife got chikungunya, a tropical virus, which paralyzed her legs. <laughs> Mm. I had to carry her for a while. Uh, we got pregnant and then we began to miscarry. So we, at the end of our first furlough, we went to Singapore on an emergency flight. Within an hour of arriving, my wife began to bleed, hemorrhage, and she almost bled to death in the back of the taxi cab on the way to the hospital. So that was our triumphant first term. One convert that died and my wife almost died. Our second term began with a miscarriage. And then I got dengue fever, 105.6. I don't remember a week of my life. Uh, <laughs> I read about drug users that take these LSD trips. I got the same thing for free. <laughs> it was wild. Sometimes flashbacks still come to me and I, I don't recall anything. Um, the evangelist told me that I just flopped back and forth on the floor like a fish. <laughs> um, and then when I got well, we began to hike some more. We began to circulate among the tree houses we had some professions, but did they love Jesus or did they love our medicine? 
Did they love the food that we gave them? We didn't know, but we kept on, and then we begin to see some changes. Uh, we begin to see these young men, you know, people are, a lot of these people are half starved. They're skinny, they're malnourished. I'd see them taking food out. I'd, I'd see them walking with food. Where are you going? Oh, there's a sick person in the treehouse. In the past, if you got sick, you'd die in your treehouse and your body, your corpse, and your treehouse would rot together and people would just avoid you. But, I, oh, these young men, where are you going? Oh, there's someone sick in the treehouse. Oh, they must be family. Oh, no, actually, they're the other clan. We used to fight in the past. And so we saw that they were taking food to their former enemies. So, yes, there's progress. And uh, when I first came, the children would peer at me through the cracks in their huts. They wouldn't come out. The, the kids didn't play. Um, they looked very standoffish. So we begin to play soccer in the front yard. We created a front yard. Everything is difficult. You have to hack out the jungle. It's a constant fight. During a rainy season, it rains 14 foot per year there. So, you know, what's the weather like? It's hot and wet and hotter and wetter. And um, I'd always be digging ditches to try to keep our yard dry. Um, but sometimes the kids would like, you know, they'd want to slide through the mud and make a slide out of it. That's fun too. But slowly these kids would start to play in our yard, 20, 30. It, by, it got up to 100 people, sometimes over 100 people in our front yard. At first the men would come, they'd stand at the edges with their bows and arrows. Uh, but after a couple years, they didn't bring their weapons anymore. And uh, afternoons became a very joyous time of play. People are afraid of spirits but, and afraid of witches, but their favorite game became witch tag. <laughs> they had a version of tag, like zombie tag here, and they would play swangi tag, witch tag. So that which they feared became an object of mockery. You know, that's, that's a marker of success. Praise God that you can mock the witches now. And then we had some baptisms, and we begin to see some changes. But of course, all along, at nighttime, we just basically collapsed into bed. Um, some of the outlying villages still treated me as an oddity. They would come to check out the house. Um, the, some of the people would still wear the grass skirts, topless women. The men would still wear the leaves. They'd come in and finally we got solar panels installed and our electricity working finally. Um, my wife had to do our laundry in the creek for the first four or five years. Um, I'm not very technologically savvy, so it took a while before we got uh, a solar refrigerator. So we had to live on dehydrated food. And uh, man, I got hungry sometimes, you know. I'd get meat hungry, you know. There's hungry and then there's meat hungry where you're starved for protein. And so I would go out at night and the crawdads would have little red eyes, so he'd stab them and you could collect a couple kilograms of crawdad meat. But some of the men were still so scared at night of the witches that they were malnourished and they wouldn't go hunting with me. I'd give them a flashlight and they'd shine the flashlight beam and a flashlight shines different, so it'd bounce off the trees and one guy threw his hands up and ran back to the village because uh, the, the flashlight beam bounced. So, Many days, it was just very surreal. 
you know, it was our culture put in with this tribe and imagine how shocked they were. You know, we have automobiles and electricity, but we gradually gained this over, what, 100 years or so? Imagine in, a, in the course of a few months being introduced to all of this. I turn on a flashlight and people startle. And when the people startle, they suck in their breath and they beat their chest. <gasps> so every day there'd be men on my back, on our front porch. <gasps> oh, what's that? Or I'd put uh, suntan lotion on my arms. Oh, that's what makes the skin white. Um, <laughs> I... Uh, it was, it was just, it was, it was bizarre enough that it kept us intrigued. So it was, it, you know, it's always good to have a little humor in hard situations. But praise God, we begin to see conversions. We begin to see the need for a school. The first believing men, they came to me, Bapa, we want to read the Bible for ourselves. And so Jimmy the evangelist, he began to open a school. And that was the first, that was the first steps in getting the school started. And then we had our second term, and my wife kind of suffered an immune system collapse here in the states. And so that was how we spent our second term. So victory unto victory, right? <laughs> a steady march forward, triumph after triumph. It seems like we're constantly just tripping forward, struggling forward every night, basically passing out in the bed. Um, but, you know, God is the ultimate healer. But we saw people at the brink of death coming back to life. We saw people, they were digging the grave and about to carry the body out. And uh, I started a, a couple bags of IV, and the lady came awake within a couple hours. <laughs> I'm a miracle worker. I raise the dead. I'm like, don't put her in the ground yet. You know, there's still a pulse. Um, so praise God for that. And the third term, this brings us up to the third term. We had baptisms. We began, during our second term, we began to disciple the leaders. Monday, these men, these believing men, would converge on Donawage from the surrounding posts. And we'd go through these picture book stories. We'd go through these stories from the Bible. Uh, for Monday and Tuesday, I would go through the story, go through the application. Wednesday and Thursday, they would each get up and try to give the story back and apply it. And then Friday or Saturday, they would disperse. And in that manner, there was some sort of... Uh, understandable gospel presentation every Sunday in not only in Donawage but the surrounding villages and sometimes I would trek with them to see how they were doing and we would tag team and we would try to teach we would try to preach um, sometimes they did good one time they began to argue whether Noah brought ants and termites onto the ark or not because they would eat the boat and then the boat would sink and I'm like let's stay focused guys we'll go over this afterwards so it's, it's uh, very amusing as you're trying to. And then, of course, you get to the story of Abraham and circumcision, and the tribal guys are like, God said what? And you're, and you're trying to explain that. But then the tribal believers begin to interpret it for me. Oh, when we own a pig, we mark its ear. So that's a mark of ownership. And now baptism is a mark of ownership, God's ownership of us. We're God's pigs. 
God owns us. And that's how you show that you belong to God. I'm like, oh, I didn't teach that. They taught that. They taught it to me. So I begin to be able to see the world through tribal eyes. But this need for a school, basically we were just, we were swamped. We needed more workers. I recruited another Western family, Paul and Trish Snyder. He would later get dengue fever and he's off the field as well. His health is shattered as well. So both of, our, both of the Western families have paid a steep price. I'm glad there are gospel fruits, but we forget that those fruits come at a high price. You know, you want to be the soldier coming home to march in a victory parade, but sometimes you, you feel more likely to come home in a body bag, right? But that's okay, Christ has already won the victory. We're just mopping up, right? We're the occupying forces, occupy till he comes, right? So we don't have to worry about the final outcome. Amen. So I began to travel to the more affluent island of Java to recruit teachers, to recruit nurses. And we made a partnership with a Christian reform college that sent us teachers and nurses. And, uh, and that really relieved the burden from us quite a bit. And that brings us into our third term about 2016, 2017. I guess I'm up to malaria case number 17 or 18 at this point. And every time I got malaria after that point, my spleen would swell. And every time I got well, it would go down, but every time I got malaria, it would swell even bigger until I couldn't even, I couldn't even bend over to tie my shoes because my spleen swelled so bad after about case number 20. And so I began to think maybe our time is limited. So it really propelled things that everything has to be in the hands of the nationals. It can't rest upon us. So every trip we took, every survey we took, every preaching circuit we took, we brought along Korowai believers and we brought along these Highland Donnie Christians with us because we realized that at any time we could be removed from sickness. And very soon we realized that we could be removed by the government because some things begin to happen. They begin to do illegal mining upriver from us. And uh, it muddied the river, it chased off the game. The locals were not fairly compensated. Um, um, they couldn't even feed themselves anymore because all the game was chased away. And the miners were dumping mercury in the water. And so I began, I felt that I couldn't ignore it. I began to aggressively wage a fight against that. We got the mine shut down twice, but I earned a lot of enemies. It's reopened, but now with rules, it's legal now that the people must be fairly compensated and there can be no use of mercury at all. So that's a partial victory, I'll take it. Um, Meantime, a couple pastors in the States call me a social justice warrior. I'm like, they're poisoning our water, what do I do? I'm not a social justice warrior. I just don't want these poor people to die. If you love a people, you want to care for them in all aspects, spiritually, healthcare, education. And so it was a hill that I didn't really have a choice but to die on. And that put me in the crosshairs of many corrupt politicians. 
So that brings me up to about 2018. There was an epidemic of, of all things, measles to our south. Over 100 people to our south died. You don't hear of people dying of measles too much in the States. But if you're half starved, then you might die of measles. And so we vaccinated everybody in my every village, every northern Korowai village, we vaccinated. The government gave us the vaccines. The government helped us. Um, later, they would use that against me because I was on a church visa. And the gold miners used that to show that I had transgressed my visa. And yet, they featured me in the paper. They called me a, a hero. Um, they gave me a certificate of appreciation from the top levels of the government. But when I crossed the rich politicians in charge, they used that against me. But during this immunization, during these immunizations, I got my 24th case of malaria. And my spleen got so bad that I could barely sit. I basically spent all day, every day puking for about a week. Um, the government nurses ended up immunizing the last two villages, and I got a medevac out. A missionary plane came. We were limited on space. Each of my children could pack up one backpack of everything they owned, and then we had to leave due to space concerns, due to weight concerns. The last Sunday I was in the village, we had 24 baptized believers take the Lord's Supper. But a couple days later, I basically crawled to the airplane. <laughs> um, yeah, go out with a bang, right? And that commenced three years of suffering. It was my 24th case of malaria. My liver was swollen, my spleen was swollen, my gallbladder was swollen. I had four other parasites besides that. One was strongyloidiasis, which if it proliferates has about a 90% mortality rate. And they found a spot in my brain and high levels of mercury. Where'd that mercury come from? And so I, that started months and months of excruciating nonstop pain. So hard that I would beat my head against the tile floor to try to knock myself out. Exhaustion so bad that wherever I was, I would just have to lay down we went to Malaysia to recover. I just had to lay down on the sidewalk. And, I, and they didn't know I could speak Malay. So they're talking, oh, this must be a drunk Australian guy. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm from Australia. <laughs> um, and uh, when you're so tired that you lay down face first on the hospital floor, you know you're sick because that's nasty. And, uh, but I couldn't even sleep. I was in such pain that I would go two or three days without sleeping until I would just pass out. And, uh, but I began to get these Facebook messages, these little boys that grew up wearing leaves in these tree houses. Oh, Bapa, I just graduated school and now I want to go to Bible college next year. Will you pray for me? So what could be a better encouragement when you feel like you're about to die than that? And I kept getting these messages. And uh, you know, I'm a little embarrassed. This video was labeled Trevor Johnson Ministries. How egotistical does that sound to name the ministry? But the Papuans named that. While I was sick, they recruited other teachers and they sent teachers to the villages on my behalf. 
So the ministry expanded once I was removed from it. <laughs> should that make me feel good or should that make me feel bad? <laughs> and uh, so in the 17 years I was involved in Papua, we ended up planting a church. We opened a school, we opened a medical clinic, we built a dormitory slash orphanage, and then under the leadership of the Indonesian nationals, we opened a second school in a different village. And within the past six months, we've opened three preschools. And we're, right now we're building new teacher's housing and another dormitory. So maybe I should have been removed a lot sooner. <laughs> maybe I was in the way. And so I praise God that, you know, if I had spent all that time there and there had been no converts, God would still be glorified. But I, I sure am glad to see fruit. And uh, sure I'm glad it didn't cost me my life. But if I could go back, even if I knew I would die after a year or two, I would still go back. I miss the people there. They're still doing good work. I came back to the States here to put my son in military school because he did not adjust well to the Asian schools where you sit for six or eight hours. Boys shouldn't have to be made to sit for that long. He was out there wrestling with the tribal kids nonstop and then he was put there for six or eight hours. So uh, now he's in a military school and they get to fight with pugil sticks and do obstacle courses. So, um, so we came back to put him into school and then the borders closed because of COVID. So. Last year, me and Noah tried to go back to Indonesia, and they threw us both in jail. That's a good father-son bonding, right? So uh, they jailed and deported me, and they told me that if I come back to Indonesia, they would jail me again and forget about me for a very long time. So that's where I'm at. Last year, I tried to travel. I, tried, I, I spoke at one church. My speaking schedule was one church last year. And I threw up, and a church dropped me. So I concluded the best thing I could do is just shut up and heal. And so a year later, here I am. And uh, I feel good enough to travel. But um, I, I uh, you know, as soon as I came back to the States, they tried to give me opioids. They tried to give me these, these addictive pain medicine. So I began to work out. And if you move about a bit, the blood goes to your shoulder and it relieves the pain at least for an hour or two. So sometimes I would work out in the morning and work out at night. And that was my therapy as well. And we've I've just been taking vitamins and trying to get healthy. But uh, I'll confess, I, uh, I woke up what Sunday, I woke up Saturday morning to fly here. I have not slept since. Um, sometimes I just can't, there's something off still. So I'm basically, I'm, this is my second day without sleep. Um, so I'm getting healthy, but pray for me. I, um, the most simplest human activity I can no longer do. <laughs> so, um, maybe I need more practice. I don't know. Uh, but I, I am glad that I'm strong enough to report to the churches. You know, I, 
I have not falsely inflated the success or the numbers. We, we really didn't, we baptize no person unless we catechize them for at least three to six months. And so we, we've seen true gospel fruit. We've seen an indigenous church planted. Our goal was to see Korowai shepherds leading Korowai sheep. And we've seen that happen. What do I do in the future? I don't know. I'm kicked out of the country. <laughs> so that doesn't really make a good sell for churches if you want them to support you. What are you going to do? I don't know. We have an immigration lawyer. We've been invited to India, to Thailand, to East Timor, a number of other countries. I've been invited to teach in a classroom setting here, but uh, once you've seen people in true poverty, once you've seen people truly starving, it's really hard to be here. I don't think, I'm not sure I can be happy in the States. We're to be content in all things, but God, I'm weak. Send me back. <laughs> let me go to somewhere poor and dirty and let me be useful again. Pray that for me, please. Maybe in the future, I'll be content here. But William Wilberforce, he helped to end the slave trade and he said something, what did he say? He said, uh, you can choose to look the other way, but you can not pretend as if you didn't know. So once you see something, you know, and it affects you. <clears throat> you eat your big turkey dinner or your Christmas dinner, and then you realize at this moment, there are people starving and dying in the village that I left. And uh, it makes you long to go back, even if it's a difficult life. As hard as it was, every day that I lived there, I thank God that I could live there. It was a privilege. Um, what the missionary David Livingston said, if the commission of an earthly king is to be considered an honor, why would the commission of our heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? And so my health has been shattered, but I feel that this service, God has given me a gift. God has given me a privilege to live there. One of the last tribal peoples of this sort in the history of the world, and I got to be there among them. So I am of all people, one of the most blessed. Well, if you have any questions, uh, see me afterwards, but thank you for all your support from the very beginning. Before I could report any of this, we've seen an indigenous church barn, and uh, we'll meet Korowai believers in heaven. <laughs> what could be better? <laughs>